I was saying that we are now looking at contract, law relating to contract, and I was pointing out that there are at least five elements in relation to contract formation, valid offer, valid acceptance, good consideration, the intention to create legally binding relationship, and the capacity to contract. Once these elements are present, then we have a binding contract. And what we shall be looking at is each of these elements in turn. And although we have broken them down, all of them need to be present simultaneously for there to be a valid contract. So if any of them are absent or if there's any deficiency, then it is unlikely that you will have a valid contract um, resulting. So we look at offer and acceptance and we will seek to determine what constitutes valid offer and valid acceptance. So the, again, if we were to devise a formula, what we would say valid offer plus valid acceptance plus good consideration plus intentions create legally binding relationship, plus the capacity to contract equals valid agreement or equals binding agreement. And that would really be the formula. And right off the bat, we begin to look at some cases. And here we have Gibson and Manchester City Council the 1978 case and essentially this case was discussing whether we really need these formalities that we have just spoken about for there to be a valid contract and here the judge with Lord Denning is suggesting a less rigid more flexible approach and he's the context of this case or the facts of this case are as follows that you have a local authority wrote to Mr. Gibson stating that council may be prepared to sell the house to you at the purchase price of £2,725 less 20% which is £2,180 and they enclosed an application form in the letter. So Mr. Gibson returned the completed application form on the 5th March and wrote again on the 18th of March requesting the council to carry on with the purchase. But before the contract could be exchanged, there was a change in the council. Elections were held, the council was voted out, new councillors came in, and they discontinued the policy of selling council houses. So Mr. Gibson now sued the incoming council to enforce his agreement with the council. And remember what we said that for there to be a valid contract, there must be valid offer, valid acceptance, good consideration, the intention to create legally binding relationship, the capacity to contract. And the question is, were all these elements present in this exchange between the council and Mr. Gibson? Now, Lord Denning stated that there was no need for a formal offer and acceptance. And immediately, that should sound contrary to what we just said. So, Lord Denning continued. He suggested that if from the correspondence it was clear that the parties were agreed on all material terms, 
then there was a binding contract, even though all the formalities had not been gone through. So put it in a nutshell or put it differently. Denning is saying that you don't need to have clear or express offer and acceptance. Once the general terms can be identified and the parties' minds have met, then that is a valid contract. So he went on further to say the traditional need of an offer and an acceptance would only be dispensed with in a typical um, cases well that is actually the commentary on the case itself so put it this way that what we have started out with is a case that challenges what the status quo is and one could would, could even argue challenges what the precedence is and what is the precedence that there must be valid offer there must be valid acceptance there must be good consideration there must be intention to create legally binding relationship and the capacity to contract to have a valid contract. And we're going to come back to that case um, momentarily. That is just the opening salvo to prepare for what is to come. So having established the elements of the contract formation, the next issue is what type of contracts do we have? And here we can see that we have unilateral agreements, we have bilateral agreements, and we can say multilateral agreements. And we can substitute the word agreements for contract, right? So we're going to be using the word agreements and contract interchangeably. means the same thing. So a bilateral contract consists of an exchange of promises. And make note of the word promise or promises because that word is going to feature very prominently in contract law certainly in these preliminary um, points that we are making here because this is really now the foundation right so in a unilateral contract only one party makes a promise that is the offeror and the offeror is the person who is making the promise so a unilateral offer is accepted by doing what is requested in the offer. The offeree, and this is the person to whom the promise is made, does not enter into any promises. He either fulfills the condition or, or he does not. And here's another case, Carlisle and Carbolic Small Ball Company. Now... We have just started and already two cases are at you. And remember I said from the time we're doing uh, sources of law, I did make the point that contract law has a common law background, right? The, the, the foundation of contract law is the common law. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not any legislation relating to contract. There are legislation relating to contract. And we look at one of them when we complete contracts, such as the Sales of Goods Act. And there's also the Unfair Contract um, Terms Act. But we will be concerned with the Sales of Goods Act. So, what we are looking at here, having established that for there to be a valid 
and binding contract, there must be five elements. Element number one, valid offer. Element number two, valid acceptance. Element number three, good consideration. Element number four, intention to be legally bound or to create legally binding relationship. And element number five, the capacity to contract. And all of these must be present. Now, at the same time, we are accepting that you can have a unilateral contract where one person is making the offer and you can have a bilateral contract where there's an exchange of promises so there are two parties that are involved and in our minds I'm sure that is the formation or the formulation that we are more familiar with or there can be multilateral agreements or contract where there are many parties that are involved. So the distinction between bilateral and unilateral contract is important with regards to advertisement, revocation of offers, communication of acceptance. So these are three elements that we must look at in considering whether the, um, the contract is binding or not or whether it has been accepted or not. How how do those manifest themselves? How do they play out? I suspect when you have two parties, it is much easier to determine whether these elements are present or not. And then if, if you have only one party who is making an offer, then you have to determine how do you, uh, how do you conclude that the offer has been accepted and how do you conclude that there is an intention to be legally bound so before we answer that question we need to better understand what exactly is an offer so we're now looking at the definition of an offer because remember as we said that you must have a valid offer valid acceptance good consideration intention to be legally bound and the capacity to contract so an offer is a promise to be bound to certain terms if the other party responds. And this may be problematic because remember again, what we have said is that in a unilateral contract where there is one offeror, who is the party that is going to be responding? It is easy if we know that there are two persons, an offeror and an offeree, and if we know that there may be one offeror and several offerees, then we know where the response is going to come from. But if one person is doing the communicating, how do we then establish a binding contract? So, for an offer to be valid, it must be communicated so that the other party may accept or reject it. And here again, the question arises, how would that manifest itself in the context of a unilateral offer? And that question we shall answer. But before we get there, here comes another case to illustrate the point. So in Taylor and Laird, 1856, the master of a ship gave up his command during a voyage, but helped to sail the ship home. And remember what I said to you, if you are looking for the ratio decidendi of a case, you find it 
after the word held. So it was held that the owner did not have to pay for his assistance. Question is why? So an offer to assist had not been communicated to them, so they had not had an opportunity to accept or reject it. So there was no valid offer. So the person who is making the offer must give the offeree the opportunity to accept or to reject that offer. Now, um, the question in that particular case, if you did not really follow it very closely, and let's go back. If you didn't follow it very closely, remember what it says here. He was under contract to complete a voyage, gave up the voyage, gave up the contract, and then turn around to assist in completing the voyage. Now, the reality is that he was already paid for the voyage. So, he wasn't giving any new consideration in relation to assisting, nor did he communicate to the um, intended parties effectively enough for them to accept or reject his offer. And therefore, there was no valid um, offer on his part. Now, so for offer to be valid, it must be communicated. And the question then arises, what method of communication? And as we can see here, that method of communication can either be in writing, in words, or by conduct, or it can be a combination of all three of them. There is no general requirement that an agreement must be written for it to be valid. However, I must point out that a contract is as good as the paper it is written on. So in other words, oral contracts are binding. However, if a dispute were to arise, then it is going to be he said versus she said, or he said versus he said, or she said versus she said. Either formulation. So the best thing then is to condense what you are saying in writing. Right? Now, an offer may be made to a particular person, to a group of persons, or to the entire world. And remember what we have said is that we have unilateral contracts, we have bilateral contracts, we have multilateral contracts. So you can either make the offer to one specific person, to a group of persons, or to the world at large. And that brings us back to Carlisle and Carbolic Smokeball Company, 1893. And you may see different dates depending on the text that you read. But what I would suggest you do is to pay attention to this particular case because it is what we refer to as a locus classicus on the law of contract. It is a precedent establishing the principles of contract law and in a nutshell here Mrs. Carlyle bought smoke balls 
based on an advertisement in the newspaper. And the advertisement said that if she took the smoke bars as prescribed, she would not catch the flu, influenza, right? And, you know, 18, in the 1800s, there was an outbreak of what they call the Spanish flu, much akin to what we're having here now with COVID-19, right? And it claimed, I believe, 50 million um, lives during that period. Now, so nobody wanted to catch the flu. And here comes this pharmaceutical company saying that if you buy our product, take it as prescribed, you are not going to get the flu. And if perchance you get the flu having taken it as prescribed, then we are going to pay you £100. And to support their position, they placed £1,000 in the bank right to show that they were serious and when mrs carlisle took their smoke ball she got sick she then claimed her hundred pounds the company said no this was not a contract we had no intention of creating any legal relationship this was mere puff it was advertisement we um had not intended to be legally bound and the court said no that this was a unilateral offer it was a unilateral contract and that mrs carlisle accepted the terms of this agreement by her conduct so again i'd encourage you to read that case and make note of it so the offer must be definite in substance right it mustn't be vague and it has to be distinguished from an invitation to treat and i'm sure some of you may have done um business law in high school or a level law and you would have come across this concept of invitation to treat and in fact this was the defense that the smoke ball company raised they were saying that this was not a valid offer what this was was an invitation to treat it was mere puff all we were saying is that we have this product and you should buy it. So what exactly is an invitation to treat? An invitation to treat is an indication that the inviter is willing to enter into negotiations but not yet prepared to be bound. So remember you know, that the distinction between contract and anything else is the intention to be legally bound so if all that you are doing is not with that frame of mind then it is unlikely that there's going to be a contract but it's not just the frame of mind one has to look at the surrounding circumstances so here we come back to gibson and manchester city council and if you notice now it says 1979 when we first saw Gibson and Manchester City Council at the top of the hour, it said 1978. So what had happened is that the courts below had made a decision in one direction and that decision was challenged in the other direction. So, they, so, so there's now a, a closer look at the council's letter to Mr. Gibson 
and there is an attempt to determine whether this letter was in fact an offer or it was an invitation to treat. So the courts now in examining it says here that the council's letter stated we may be prepared to sell you a response to an invitation to treat does not lead to an agreement. The response itself may be an offer. So this is a little bit fuzzy, right? It's a little bit easy. So there's an attempt now to distinguish between an invitation to treat and an offer. And the distinction between an invitation to treat and an offer is the intention of the parties, what is in their minds. And this must be judged objectively. Now, we cannot read people's minds, so we have to look at the things they say and we have to look at their conduct. So we're going to continue to look at what is the distinction between an offer and an invitation to treat. And these are going, and we're going to, we're going to appreciate what the difference is by using some examples. And the first example we're going to start with is the display of goods. So the question is, when you go into a store and you see merchandise on the shelf is that an invitation to treat or is that an offer when you go downtown and you walk if you can on the sidewalks and you see the vendors have their wares spread out is that an invitation to treat or is it an offer and that is the question that we're asking if you go into a shop and you see items on the shelf is that an invitation to treat or is it an offer so here we go back to the case of pharmaceutical society and great britain and boots limited to answer the question the goods on the shelf are mere invitation to treat that is an invitation to the customer to make an offer for the goods so for those of you who responded by saying invitation to treat you are correct so if you go into a store if you go into the supermarket and you go down the aisle and you take up the items and you put them in your cart and then you walk to the cashier and you present them at the point of presenting those items to the cashier then at that point, you are making an offer to purchase these items. As long as these items are on the shelf, being displayed, they are an invitation to treat. And in retail world, they call it merchandising. Right? So the display of goods, whether it is in shop, whether it is in a pharmacy, whether it is in Megamart, whether it is in um, John R. Wong, whether it is in Hilo, or you go downtown and you see it on the street, that is an example of an invitation to treat. It is not an offer. When you take up the people's items and you then present it to them and say that you will buy it, you are making the offer um, at that particular point in time. Is that clear? So 
we continue to look at the cases and as and what I want you to observe here in contract law is that for every principle that we are going to learn there is a case or, or several cases that support the point or draw a distinction on the point and it is important that you understand the principle understand the point and are able to see the distinction now remember what we are speaking about we are speaking about the elements of contract we want to know when is a contract binding and a contract is binding when five elements are present element number one valid offer element number two valid acceptance element number three good consideration element number four intention to be legally bound or intention to create legally binding relationship and element number five the capacity to contract and you will see less about the capacity to contract uh, and more about the other four but point is that you must have the capacity to contract and in some instances that capacity may be implied so having established that we have these five elements or five ingredients to create this contract we are then now looking at each ingredient in turn so we have looked at offer and we are saying that for an offer to be valid it must be communicated the offeror must have the opportunity to either accept or to reject it and then we must make a distinction between what is an offer and what is an invitation to treat that is the point that we have been making up to this juncture now we have indicated that the display of goods is an example of an invitation to treat so if you go into a supermarket if you go into Hilo if you go into Mega Mart if you go into Price Mart if you go downtown to Carnation Market and you see the vendors there or if you go to Papi Market and you see the vendors there and they have their wares spread out are they making an offer or is that an invitation to treat so I'm asking the question when you go into a store and you see the items on the shelf is that an offer or an invitation to treat it's an invitation to treat so the cases that we have been looking at are now illustrating what is an invitation to treat so in Fisher Bell 
1961, here a flick knife is displayed in a window with the price attached to it. And the question was, is this an offer or an invitation to treat? And the answer is immediately in front of you, which is, it's an invitation to treat. <laughs> the slide is right there in front of you with the answer. A flick knife displayed in a window with a price attached was an invitation to treat. Now, don't be fooled because it now introduces the business of price. Right? Don't be tricked. Because when you go into a store, even though um, of re in recent times, stores are now not putting the prices on the items. They may put barcodes. And when you go to the, the, the checkout counter, that is when the price invitation to treat vis-a-vis -vis an offer. And Partridge and Crittenden, 1968, establishes that advertisement, generally speaking, are invitations to treat. Right? But we'll come back to that. Now, I see a question here. Uh, what if the price dis they displayed is different from what they want to sell it for? Well, that depends. Um that doesn't prevent it from being an invitation to treat. That doesn't prevent it from being an invitation to treat. But when we come to look at consumer protection, we can have a more discussion surrounding the price that is displayed. Because remember, you know, when you take up the item, so they have the sticker price on there, um, and you take up the item, and you go to the counter, Whatever the sticker price is, unless it can be shown that there is a mistake, that is the price that you are to pay at the counter unless you want to pay more. Right? And as I have said to you, when we get to consumer protection, we'll explore that a little bit more. So we come back to Carlisle and Carbolic Smokeball Company Limited. Because as I said to you, this was an advertisement about the smoke balls and their curative properties in preventing influenza. And the difference here is that it wasn't just an advertisement. They went further. They said that if you take this smoke ball and you get sick, you get the flu, we will pay you £100. So there was a reward that followed that advertisement and that reward that followed the advertisement made it a unilateral offer right so they went beyond just presenting information they went beyond just peer promotion they went beyond mere puff they essentially monetized the and encouraged the person to take their product and they warranty that product by saying, if you take our product and you get sick, then we are going to pay you £100. There's a question. Yes, sir. Good night, sir. Good night. All right, sir. So, all right. So, let's say you own a business, right? And you and your employer, your staff, comes to an agreement to a contract where... 
the person agrees with you to get a certain amount of money, but this amount of money is below the minimum wage. The minimum wage is a guide. You're not supposed to pay below it. Right? So, um, when will the question then is it valid or is it invalid? Right? And if it is not, if you are not supposed to pay below the minimum wage, then there may be issues in relation to the validity of that contract. And therefore, it could be deemed to be invalid. And the person would be in breach of the minimum wage guidelines. They could attract sanctions or fines. Alright, so we continue to look at um, offer versus invitation to treat. And here again, we look at the case Lefkowitz and Great Minneapolis Stores, 1957. And that case establishes the advertisement stated Saturday 9 a.m. sharp, three brand new fur coats worth £100. First come, first serve, one pound each. And of course, you know, customers like a bargain. And there were three customers who turned up, 9 a.m. sharp, with their one pound. And the company refused to sell them it at the one pound because they were saying this was an invitation to treat. It was just promotional exercise. It was mere puff. But the courts did not agree with them. And like the Carlisle Carbolic Smoke Company case, they said this was a unilateral offer and therefore there was a binding contract and the company had to part with their fur coat for one pound each. So the point here is be careful what you put out there in the name of advertisement. Then as we continue to look at invitation to treat uh, auctions are examples of invitation to treat because the, the auctioneer is inviting bids right so when the auctioneer puts the item forward and they are saying to you um are there any bids and then you place your bid you are making the offer right i'm not sure in relation to what you're asking that question what what, what are you asking it in relation to Are we talking about Lefkowitz or are we talking about... Okay. Well, no. Remember, I know, in that particular case, yes, there was a... There, there, it was to the public, but it's not because it was to the public. It's because they said, first come, first serve, and if you are the first one to come, you are going to get it at one pound. So the, the, the mechanics in there is about the reward for doing what they say you should do. 
it's like the lotto. If you don't have a ticket, you don't stand a chance, right? But obviously, buying the lotto ticket itself is not going to entitle you to win, but it will give you the prospect of winning. In this particular instance, the company is saying to you definitively, if you get here at 9 a.m. sharp, we will sell you this 100 pound fur coat for one pound. So the persons, as we say in Jamaica, broke, they broke them neck, turn up, right? Put you in mind a Black Friday when people camp out before day morning because what? They want to get the deals. So the point is, is that when you're placing an ad, you must be mindful of how you place that ad so that you don't cross the line from just mere information into a unilateral offer, right? So once it is that you qualify and you place a reward type of setting in the ad, then you are going to find yourself into difficulties, right? Now, what you will realize is that most persons who run ads, they will tell you very quickly, conditions apply. Or they will qualify it by putting a disclaimer that this is just for... Um, advertisement purposes or the things are not as they appear and one of the um, great offenders of that is the home of the whopper they tell you that this is a give you the impression that is a massive sandwich they call it a whopper but then when you go is a whimper right but them say conditions apply or they tell you um, this is for illustrative purposes, right? Now, so the case again of Payne and Kane, 1789, establishes that the auctioneer's request was an invitation to treat and that the offer was made when the bidder raised their um, price or said what their price was. And then in Harrison and Nickerson, 1873, and look at the, 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 the dates of these cases, how old they are, right? So what, what it is illustrating here is that the, these precedents, because these are precedents, are of long standing and that they are valid law up to today. So a notice of a notice that an auction would be held on a certain date was not an offer which could be accepted by turning up at the stated time. So again, this was really an advertisement. It was an invitation to treat. It was not a unilateral um, offer. So we continue to look at invitation to treat. And then we look at the case of Havale Limited and Royal Trust of Canada, 1985, and this is a more recent case. And here, the this is talking about tenders, right? And we have public tenders, we have private tenders. So if the government wants to get a certain work done, they may put it out to tender. And the question is, is the tender an offer or is it an invitation to treat? And the answer to that is it depends. Or as we can see here, as a general rule, tenders are normally invitation to treat. But they can become unilateral offers. 
So, if the request is made to specified parties and it is stated that the contract will be awarded to the lowest or the highest bidder, then it will be binding as a unilateral offer, which is logical, right? So usually when you put out a tender, you don't stipulate price. You're looking for the best price because you want people to compete to give you the best prices. But if you then now qualify that tender and say that the person who bids the lowest will get it, or the person who bids the highest will get it, then you are shifting it from an invitation to treat to a unilateral offer. So once they, whoever the lowest bid is, they would get it, or whoever the highest bid is, they would get it. It would almost become automatic. Now, if you have been sent a correspondence, and the correspondence has this um, caption, subject to contract, it is an invitation to treat. What it is saying is that we are in negotiations. These are the terms that we would like in the contract, but we don't reach there yet. So at that stage, we are not ready to be legally bound. So in Waldorf and Myers 1992, subject to contract may be placed on the top of a letter in order to indicate that certain statements are not to be legally binding. So the persons are simply having a dialogue and they're exchanging terms, they're exchanging um, letters, but they are not yet ready to be bound legally. And, and to prevent any misunderstanding, they put in their subject to contract. So what about the sale of land? So here's a case now, and the question here, is this an invitation to treat, or is this a unilateral offer? And this case, incidentally, is a Jamaican case, Harvey and Facey, 1893. Will you sell bumper hall pen? Telegraph lowest price for bumper hall pen. So this is a person who is now seeking to buy bumper hall pen. Right, the plaintiff. So the defendant now is a person who would have sold bumper hall pen, responded, lowest price for bumper hall pen, 900 pounds. And the court was asked to decide, was this an example of a, an offer or was this an invitation to treat? And the courts decided that this was supplying information which is or that is an invitation to treat and not an offer what about timetables and buses so remember now what we're trying to establish is what is an offer what is an invitation to treat and you know in recent times jamaica has become a little bit more organized when it comes on to public transport not where we should be but certainly a little bit better and depending on where you are in half a tree, you can probably pull down some semblance of a schedule on your smartphone um, from the transport center. So the question here now is where is the offer, where is the invitation to treat 
and Wilkie and London Transport Board 1947 made it clear that there was no clear authority on offers and invitation to treat in the case of passenger bus services. And Lord Green, who was the presiding judge, um, held that the offer was made by the bus company and it was accepted by the passenger when he boarded the bus. So if if it is that you think about your own experiences in going on a JUTC bus, the question is, when is the contract formed? Now, my understanding is that when you when you go on the buses presently, you present either your bus card, which you would have prepaid, or you pay um, upon entry. So at the point of paying is when that contract would have been formed. So when the bus rolls up at your feet, it is really offering you service. And when you step on the bus, approach the driver, make the payment, you are accepting the service at that point. Now, um, for the lowest price. Or they could say, sell me bumper oil pen for 900 pounds. Then it would have been an offer. Otherwise, it's really just seeking information and it would be, an, would be as it were, an invitation to treat. So, now that we have established what constitutes an offer, what constitutes a valid offer, and we have distinguished between invitation to treat on one hand and offer on the other hand. We now want to say how does one terminate an offer. And an offer may be terminated in three ways. Revocation, which is termination by the offeror, the person making the offer. Lapse, which is termination by operation of law. Rejection which is termination by the offeree or the person to whom the offer has been made. So revocation, lapse and rejection are the three ways that an offer may be terminated. So on the question of revocation, that is where an offeror withdraws an offer at any time before acceptance. Pay close attention there. So if the person has already accepted, you can't then revoke. Revocation must happen before the offer has been accepted. And this becomes very critical when we are dealing with the postal rule as we will um, see momentarily. So the revocation must be communicated to the offeree before acceptance. So if the offeror change their mind, they must communicate that they have changed their minds before the offeree accepts the offer. So in Bern, here the withdrawal of an offer sent by telegram was held to be communicated only when the telegram was received. 
So the mode or the means of communication is very important when it comes on to revocation of offer. And these cases are old cases, so they never had internet, uh, they never had um, WhatsApp. So now hold it there um, for...